Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I hope you're staying warm wherever you are. As I'm sure some of you know already, I'm from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, smack dab in the middle of the Canadian prairies. And we've had the pleasure, or rather displeasure, of topping out as the coldest place on Earth at least once in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, colder than Siberia. Colder than Antarctica. Colder even than Mars, as it turns out. With wind chill, some days it's dropped colder than minus 50 Celsius. That's almost minus 60 for those who use Fahrenheit. Not your typical kind of horror, but when your skin begins to freeze in seconds and it hurts just to breathe, that's a horror all its own. Now, I'm not sharing this to try to make you feel bad for those of us caught in the quote-unquote polar vortex, but rather as a segue to let you know why I'm so glad to be elsewhere at the time of release of this episode. Currently, I'm basking in the sun and sand of Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula, an area known as the Mayan Riviera, to be more specific. I'd love for you all to be here, but since my suitcase is only so big, the next best thing I can do is share some spooky stories from this part of the world. If you've never been... One of the things Yucatan is most famous for are the Mayan ruins peppered through the jungle. It's the location of one of the most iconic structures of the ancient world, the Stepped Pyramid at Chichen Itza, and the heart of the Mayan civilization. If you know anything about the ancient Mayans, their culture was steeped in the kind of traditions that make perfect fodder for our genre. Strange creatures, blood magic, and even human sacrifice. Plenty of legends and terrifying tales can be found in Yucatan, but one that's not just geographically centered in Yucatan, but also continues to surface even in modern times, is the tale of the Huaychivo. William May Amescuta grew up in a small neighborhood on the outskirts of the city of Merida, the capital of Yucatan. It was the 1960s, and like many families in the neighborhood, William's family wasn't particularly well-off. There were no electronics or fancy store-bought toys to occupy their time. During the day, William and the other kids occupied themselves outdoors, playing ball, going on pretend adventures, or other inventive games around the town and in the nearby forest. 
Naturally, the dark, mysterious caves yawning out of the rock not far within the forest were incredibly enticing for young imaginations. The caves, though, which sat near an old abandoned convent, were expressly forbidden, especially after dark. Not only were they dangerous of themselves, but there had been strange creatures spotted nearby. Creatures the adults feared to go into detail about, but that always resulted in a serious, somber shift in tone when conversation turned to them. One evening, though, William had lost track of time, and the sun had begun to dip dangerously close to the horizon. In his wandering, William found himself uncomfortably close to the caves, and as he hurried nervously toward home, a loud noise from the pathway behind froze him to his spot. It sounded like hooves, a horse galloping up the trail behind him, fast. William turned, and at the head of the path, barreling toward him at high speed, was what appeared to be a large man, or at least a creature with the torso of a man. The shape of the man's head was strange. From it sprouted large horns, like those of a bull or goat. Its hooved feet thundered on the hard-packed earth, and William, afraid he was moments from being trampled to death, dove out of the way into the bushes. He cowered there, afraid to look up until the sound of the hooves died away, and the nighttime sounds of the forest had come to life around him. As soon as he felt safe enough to creep out of the bushes, William ran straight home as fast as his legs would take him. And when he arrived, his mother's stern looks at his late return melted quickly. He described every detail he could remember about the creature and his narrow escape. And his mother's complexion grew paler with each word. After a few moments of silence, his mother, eyes distant, uttered just two words. Huaychivo. The legend of the Huaychivo is an old one in Yucatan. It's a creature found not just in oral tradition, but whose likeness has been carved into the very stone of Mayan structures found on the peninsula. Half human and half animal, the Huaychivo comes out at night, and mostly attacks and eats livestock and jungle animals. Encounters with humans, though, usually end in the victim becoming sick, rather than a deadly physical attack. In English, Huaychivo translates, more or less, as witch goat. Goat might be a little misleading, though, since they didn't actually exist in Mexico until Europeans introduced them much later, and certainly didn't exist there when some of the carvings and other representations of the creature were made. A combination of Mayan and Spanish, the name likely comes from a more recent story. That legend tells the tale of a young man who grew up near Merida. While his family was quite poor, the boy was smart and demonstrated an affinity for the natural world, having an almost innate understanding of plants and their healing properties. As he aged and his skills grew, he became a full-fledged hue, or witch. In typical fable fashion, he fell in love with a beautiful merchant girl, whose family owned a large hacienda nearby. He helped with their livestock, which included a large herd of goats. But when he eventually worked up the courage to ask her to marry him, she refused. His status was beneath theirs, after all. The young Huai returned home full of rage that day. In his anger and desperation, he called on the one being that, he thought, could turn things in his favor. The devil. He would willingly sacrifice his very soul, he said, if only he could spend every day of his life by his beloved side. The devil, smiling a toothy grin, agreed, and promptly turned the young man into a goat. Now go join the herd, he said, and be by her side. Turns out, no matter what part of the world your devil comes from, poor phrasing is one of his favorite contractual loopholes. 
No loopholes here, I promise. Let's get you some fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from J.R. Young. J.R. Young is a consumer and author of strange fiction residing in South Carolina. He can be reached via Twitter at J.R. Young Fiction. Email jryoungfiction at gmail.com, and you can also look to his blog at monstermadnessandmagic.wordpress.com for more magical musings. Listen with me to J.R. Young's The Lords of Imagination, a Tales to Terrify original, also forthcoming spring 2019, to Lovecraftiana magazine. The lurid blaze greeted me that night as it had countless nights before. The blue flames danced deceptively amongst the outline of the imposing pines, guarding the fame of the kindlers from one unwilling to brave the unknown of the forest beyond. One unwilling, such as I. For every night, I stood at the edge of madness and despair, gazing into that fathomless darkness, ears stinging from the impenetrable silence, in hopes of catching but a note of the curious, and seemingly musical crackling of the flames. For what strange wood can produce such sounds? The burned boughs moaned and hummed, as if attempting to reveal, through solemn soliloquies in a language long lost, the intention of their ritual. For I had mastered the first phase, and the perilous popping of the embers heralded the second phase of the dream, one I had not yet dared to conquer. Initially, I welcomed the blue beacon, preferring its eerie luminosity to the binding black. However, as my nights contained within this fevered dream world continued, the once singular source of my sanity began to glow with fiendish ferocity. The wispy streaks of fire seemed to beckon me further into the darkened wood, while the fleeting warning of the boughs stayed me in terror. It was in those hours of fear that the primitive pulsating about my neck and infernal pounding within my head always began. My mind became clouded with thoughts that were not quite my own, and my eyes swelled with tears from sorrows forgotten. Before I could attempt to decipher the influx of emotions coursing through my being, I awoke, as I always did, at the foot of my typewriter, clutching a most familiar flask, lacking any evidence of the previous night's whiskey-infused stupor. For the better part of my adult years, I, Algernon Walker, have been an author of strange and weird fiction, selling my first horror piece to a magazine of similar sort at the age of 17. After receiving my degree from Miskatonic University in classic literature, I maintain my minor successes in work and life via my short stories. Though I lack the luxury-laden life of the greats, my stories offered an escape, and I enjoyed making them. I did not experience my first real success in literature or life until I met Alice Bowen. Alice was a studious southern belle that had managed to, contrary to the nature of the times and her young age, create and operate one of the more successful regional publishing companies. Our common interest in the macabre tales sprouted endless conversations on ghouls, specters, and all denizens of the dark. Our mutual musings soon grew to affection and, nearly to the day of the completion of my first novel, we were married. The novel was a success and our early years together were spent in blissful pursuits of trivial adventures throughout the known and unknown sights of the world. As we traveled, I continued to write my shorts, saving the laborious efforts of novel building for the solitude of my study. Alice was understanding of my reclusive nature, whether it be for business or the reclamation of my sanity. She was none the wiser. Writing was my true passion, and when I was not lost within the halls of my own making, I was distant and cantankerous. Alice was beautiful, and it is true that we had much in common. It was her position and prestige amongst the writing community which allured me most of all. Nearly a decade had passed since the completion of our wedding vows before our daughter, Rose, was born. Due to complications during the birth, Alice was ordered to a regimen of strict bed rest, and it fell upon me to care for them both. Writing was not my only predilection. 
But it was my only concern, you understand? My only love. As I have said, I enjoyed my time with Alice, and I certainly thought our partnership was one beneficial to us both. But I had not suspected this burdensome turn of events. The child was a raucous youth who wailed all hours of the night, wailed as if the sneering shadows that inhabited the tenebrous dark encircling the crib foretold unsettling fortunes. Between catering to the constant needs of Rose and Alice, my time within the halls of my fantasy were scarce, and this did little to ease my agitation. I became tense and began to utter curses under my breath at every request Alice presented, for she had been lying about for months, and I was no longer certain that she required my rather frequent assistance. It was ere such an outburst that Alice told me that she would not be returning to her work, and that she had full confidence in the strength of my writings and their ability to support our new family. She wished to stay home with Rose and educate the child in the proper manner. The warm, reassuring smile that crossed her face portrayed, most accurately, her admiration and honesty, and it caused my blood to boil. Soon after she informed me of her departure from her post, Alice began to recover physically and took over as the primary caregiver for the child. I was once again able to retire to my study, flask at my side, typewriter before me, and the quiet calm of the night at my back. I sat at the oaken desk, staring blankly at my idle hands. How could Alice lay such a financial burden at my feet? If I was to be the only source of income, I must produce. Imagination is the magical furnace, and this was not how it was fueled. She was selfish. In this night of uncertainty, the dream came to me, and never has it ceased henceforth. The tightness begins in my throat as my air is restricted, and the pain is so intense that my eyes bulge before I collapse from shock. Every night I dream the same dream, and every day I type the same sentence, an endlessly torturous and monotonous cycle. I have not left the study in what I can only assume to be weeks, nor have I seen Alice or heard the cries of young Rose. My heart says she has left me here to wallow in the wastes of my ineptitude and failures, abandoned by my wife and publisher. How am I to pen my magnum opus if I do not devote my entire soul to the great work? It was only my intention to write the perfect story, and distractions were costly. She knew of my reclusive nature, and at one point paid heed to it. There exists but one option to break the cycle, and that is to brave the deep, dark of the woods and venture towards the blazing flames. For all my attempts to exit the study that once conjured only serenity and peace of mind resulted in my collapse, leading me back to those wicked woods. I typed the same words I had typed over a dozen times before and downed the last ounce of the whiskey from the flask. This was the cycle as I had come to know it. Soon the pain would follow. I clasped my hand over my throat and shut my eyes to keep them in my skull. The frigid wind of the forest swept over me and I opened my eyes to the dark. Long have I contemplated the source and cause of the fire in the woods, and my ponderings concluded that the blue flames were the sparks of my subconscious mind, the essence of my imagination waiting to be rediscovered and snatched from the hollows of inactivity. This night, I would brave the dark and seek my salvation. I sat absorbed in the quiet of the place, awaiting the arrival of the musical cracklings. In time, the humming came as it always had, and I beheld the bursting flame. The fire, now emblazoned with renewed intensity, encouraged my first steps into the tree line. The limbs gnawed and scratched at my shoulders whilst the brambles and roots attempted to entangle my feet, yet onward still I marched. For how long I journeyed through the bush, I have no recollection. My body knew no exhaustion, and with each stride I tried to imagine the new horrors I would introduce in my next novel, though none came to me. I could feel the irregular heat emanating from the pyre. It warmed my skin yet chilled my bones. The vines were lashing at me now, clawing as I was now closer than ever to achieving true greatness in my craft. The flames held the answer, and nothing would stop me now. I emerged from the last blockade of limbs into an odd, yet perfectly circled clearing. The fire pit was there in front of me, and the second phase of the dream was now complete. Though it was not the fire that my attention was fixed upon, but rather the awesome apparitions stoking its flames. I recognized them all. Their words were etched into the marrow of my bones, stories sewn into the fabric of my soul. The masters of the macabre and titans of horror tales. Poe, Howard, Block, Long, Hawthorne, Stoker, and Lovecraft. I knew it was the fire that held the answer. 
for their works were the inspiration for my own stories. Now I would reclaim these fragments of my mind and be able to continue with my novel. I would be free of these damnable woods at last. I would be able to provide for Alice and Rose and break this writer's curse. The ghosts of the literary giants stood silent surrounding the flame. Their gaze never left the pit. I paced around them, admiring everyone at first glance, with boyish elation that soon decayed to apprehension. I did not believe in spirits, and some of these men were not, to my knowledge, yet deceased. This pointed to dealings of the mind, and such dealings should always be approached with caution. The foreboding fear that festered in my gut had but seconds to manifest before my anxieties were to be demonstrated. The cult of creatures turned their eyes from the blue flames and upon me for the first time. They began to part their ranks and beckon me to enter their sacred circle. I stood by the side of the spectral stoker as all stairs reverted to the fire. I followed their silent instruction. The flames painted the ground with a shade of blue that seemed to make the phantoms glow in the night. The ashes of the strange boughs burning within the pit were gelatinous, unsettling, and appeared to be crawling forth from their stone prison. The inferno roared, causing a shift in the tone of the musical sizzling, while blue sparks dotted the dark. The ashes cackled in a sinister symphony, and conjoined with the baleful laughs, now echoing from the monstrous mouths of my masters, causing the wanted tug about my neck to manifest. I attempted to fall to my knees, which had become my customary ritual when plagued by the awful grip, but something held me firm. It was then I felt strands tighten around my neck, and the pressure within my skull began to rise. My eyes remained transfixed upon the blazing inferno before me, and in those seconds before my neck snapped, the flames returned my memories. I saw myself within my study, hanging from a noose, feet kicking involuntarily in defiance as life escaped me. I saw the remains of Rose and Alice strewn about the room, and I recalled the sound of their screams as I butchered them. The gravity of my deeds was lost to me, as I felt myself begin to slip into the dark yet again. Alas, the noose did unknot, and I found myself back in the forest, stuck within the gaze of the overlords of my oppression. The third phase of the dream was complete, as was my pilgrimage. The embers of the dying pyre flickered menacingly beneath the pale moonlight as my fate was made known to me. This was not the first time I had completed the dream, not even close. I, Algernon Walker, have been made an eternal prisoner, constrained within a hell of my own mental and spiritual construction. A remnant of an event long past, a memory trapped within a nightmare, doomed to forever be mocked by the lords of my imagination. I awoke as I always did, at the foot of my typewriter, clutching a most familiar flask, lacking any evidence of the previous night's whiskey-infused stupor. That was J.R. Young's The Lords of Imagination, as read by Jonathan Danz. Jonathan Danz is a writer who lives on the edge, of the New River Gorge, that is, in West Virginia, with his wife, daughter, and a menagerie of domestic pets. When not narrating, Jonathan can be found working on his first novel, riding his bike in the woods, or hanging out with his family. He even manages to hold down a steady job. If the mood strikes, visit him at his blog, Words and Coffee, at jonathandans.com. Thank you, Jonathan. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our second story of the evening is a classic short tale from H.P. Lovecraft. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born in 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island, where he lived for most of his life. He achieved posthumous fame through his influential works of horror fiction. He was virtually unknown and published only in pulp magazines before his death, but is now regarded as one of the most significant 20th century authors in our genre. Among his most celebrated tales are The Call of Cthulhu and The Shadow Over Innsmouth, both canonical to the Cthulhu mythos. Lovecraft was never able to support himself from earnings as an author and editor. He saw commercial success increasingly elude him, partly because he lacked the confidence and drive to promote himself. He subsisted in progressively strained circumstances in his last years, and died in poverty in 1937 at the age of 46. Join me for H.P. Lovecraft's The Music of Eric Zahn, first published in the National Amateur Magazine, March 1922. I have examined the maps of the city with the greatest care, yet have never again found the Rue de Arsil. These maps have not been modern maps alone, for I know that names change. I have, on the contrary, delved deeply into all the antiquities of the place, and have personally explored every region of whatever name which could possibly answer to the street I knew as the Rue de Arsil. But despite all that I have done, it remains a humiliating fact that I cannot find the house, the street, or even the locality where, during the last months of my impoverished life as a student of metaphysics at the university, I heard the music of Eric Zahn. That my memory is broken, I do not wonder, for my health, physical and mental, was gravely disturbed throughout the period of my residence in the Rue de Arsil and I recall that I took none of my few acquaintances there. But that I cannot find the place again is both singular and perplexing, for it is within a half-hour's walk of the university, and was distinguished by peculiarities which could hardly be forgotten by anyone who had been there. I have never met a person who has seen the Rue de Arsil. The Rue de Arsil lay across a dark river, bordered by precipitous brick-blear-windowed warehouses and spanned by ponderous bridges of dark stone. It was always shadowy along that river, as if the smoke of neighboring factories shut out the sun perpetually. The river was also odorous with evil stenches which I have never smelled elsewhere, and which may some day help me to find it, since I should recognize them at once. Beyond the bridge were narrow cobbled streets with rails, and then came the ascent, at first gradual, but incredibly steep as the Rue de Arsil was reached. I have never seen another street as narrow and steep as the Rue de Arsil. It was almost a cliff, closed to all vehicles, consisting in several places of flights of steps and ending at the top in a lofty ivied wall. Its paving 
was irregular, sometimes stone slabs, sometimes cobblestones, and sometimes bare earth with struggling greenish-gray vegetation. The houses were tall, peaked-roofed, incredibly old, and crazily leaning backwards, forwards, and sideways. Occasionally, an opposite pair, both leaning forward, almost met across the street like an arch, and certainly they kept most of the light from the ground below. There were a few overhead bridges from house to house across the street. The inhabitants of the street impressed me peculiarly. At first, I thought it was because they were all silent and reticent, but later decided it was because they were all very old. I do not know how I came to live on such a street, but I was not myself when I moved there. I had been living in many poor places, always evicted for the want of money until at last I came upon that tottering house in the Rue de Arcile, kept by the paralytic Blandot. It was the third house from the top of the street, and by far the tallest of them all. My room was on the fifth story, the only inhabited room there, since the house was almost empty. On the night I arrived I heard strange music from the peaked garret overhead, and the next day asked old Blandot about it. He told me it was an old German viol player, a strange dumb man who signed his name as Eric Zahn and who played evenings in a cheap theater orchestra, adding that Zahn's desire to play in the night after his return from the theater was the reason that he had chosen this lofty and isolated garret room, whose single gabled window was the only point on the street from which one could look out over the terminating wall at the declivity and panorama beyond. Thereafter, I heard Zahn every night. Although he kept me awake, I was haunted by the weirdness of the music. Knowing little of the art myself, I was yet certain that none of his harmonies had any relation to music I had heard before, and concluded that he was a composer of highly original genius. The longer I listened, the more I was fascinated, until after a week I resolved to make the old man's acquaintance. One night, as he was returning from his work, I intercepted Zahn in the hallway and told him that I would like to know him and be with him when he played. He was a small, lean, bent person with shabby clothes, blue eyes, a grotesque satyr-like face, and nearly bald head, and at my first words seemed both angered and frightened. My obvious friendliness, however, finally melted him, and he grudgingly motioned me to follow him up the dark, creaking, and rickety attic stairs. His room, one of only two in the steeply pitched garret, was on the west side, towards the high wall that formed the upper end of the street. Its size was very great, and seemed the greater because of its extraordinary bareness and neglect. Of furniture there was only a narrow iron bedstead, a dingy washstand, a small table, a large bookcase, an iron music rack, and three old-fashioned chairs. Sheets of music were piled in disorder about the floor. The walls were of bare boards and had probably never known plaster, whilst the abundance of dust and cobwebs made the place seem more deserted than inhabited. Evidently, Eric Zahn's world of beauty lay in some far cosmos of the imagination. Motioning me to sit down, the dumb man closed the door, turned the large wooden bolt, and lighted a candle to augment the one he had brought with him. He now removed his vial from its moth-eaten covering, and taking it, seated himself in the least uncomfortable of the chairs. He did not employ the music rack, but offering no choice and playing from memory, enchanted me for over an hour with strains I had never heard before, strains which must have been of his own devising. To describe their exact nature is impossible for one unversed in music. They were a kind of fugue with recurrent passages of the most captivating quality, but to me were notable for the absence of any of the weird notes I had overheard from my room below on other occasions those haunting notes I had remembered and had often hummed and whistled inaccurately to myself. So when the player at length laid down his bow, I asked him if he would render some of them. 
As I began my request, the wrinkled, satyr-like face lost the bored placidity it had possessed during the playing, and seemed to shew the same curious mixture of anger and fright which I had noticed when I first accosted the old man. For a moment I was inclined to use persuasion, regarding rather lightly the whims of senility, and even tried to awaken my host's weirder mood by whistling a few of the strains which I had listened to the night before. But I did not pursue this course for more than a moment, for when the dumb musician recognized the whistled air, his face grew suddenly distorted with an expression wholly beyond analysis, and his long, cold, bony right hand reached out to stop my mouth and silence the crude imitation. As he did this, he further demonstrated his eccentricity by casting a startled glance towards the lone curtained window, as if fearful of some intruder a glance doubly absurd, since the garret stood high and inaccessible above all the adjacent roofs, with this window being the only point on the steep street, as the concierge had told me, from which one could see over the wall at the summit. The old man's glance brought Blandot's remark to mind, and with a certain capriciousness I felt a wish to look out over the wide and dizzying panorama of moonlit roofs and city lights beyond the hilltop, which of all the dwellers in the Rue de Arcile only this crab musician could see. I moved towards the window, and would have drawn aside the nondescript curtains, when with a frightened rage even greater than before the dumb lodger was upon me again this time motioning with his head towards the door as he nervously strode to drag me thither with both hands. Now, thoroughly disgusted with my host, I ordered him to release me, and told him I would go at once. His clutch relaxed, and as he saw my disgust and offense, his own anger seemed to subside. He tightened his relaxing grip, but this time in a friendly manner, forcing me into a chair, then, with an appearance of wistfulness, crossed to the littered table, where he wrote many words with a pencil in the labored French of a foreigner. The note, which he finally handed me, was an appeal for tolerance and forgiveness. Zahn said that he was old, lonely, and afflicted with strange fears and nervous disorders connected with his music and with other things. He had enjoyed my listening to his music and wished I would come again and not mind his eccentricities but he could not play to another his weird harmonies, and he could not bear hearing them from another, nor could he bear having anything in his room touched by another. He had not known until our hallway conversation that I could overhear his playing in my room, and now asked me if I would arrange with Bladeau to take a lower room where I could not hear him in the night. He would, he wrote, defray the difference in rent." As I sat deciphering the execrable French, I felt more lenient towards the old man. He was a victim of physical and nervous suffering, as was I, and my metaphysical studies had taught me kindness. In the silence there came a slight sound from the window, the shutter must have rattled in the night wind, and for some reason I startled almost as violently as did Eric Zahn. So when I had finished reading I shook my host by the hand and departed as a friend. The next day, Blandot gave me a more expensive room on the third floor between the apartments of an aged moneylender and the room of a respectable upholsterer. There was no one on the fourth floor. It was not long before I found that Zahn's eagerness for my company was not as great as it had seemed while he was persuading me to move down from the fifth story. He did not ask me to call on him, and when I did call, he appeared uneasy and played listlessly. This was always at night. In the day he slept and would admit no one. My liking for him did not grow, although the attic room and the weird music seemed to hold an odd fascination for me. I had a curious desire to look out of that window, over the wall and down the unseen slopes at the glittering roofs and spires which must lie outspread there. Once I went up to the garret during theater hours when Zahn was away, but the door was locked. What I did succeed in doing was to overhear the nocturnal playing of the dumb old man. At first I would tiptoe up to my old fifth floor, then I grew bold enough to climb that last creaking staircase to the peaked garret. There, in the narrow hall, 
Outside the bolted door with the covered keyhole, I often heard sounds which filled me with an indefinable dread, the dread of vague wonder and brooding mystery. It was not that the sounds were hideous, for they were not, but that they held vibrations suggesting nothing on this globe of earth, and that at certain intervals they assumed a symphonic quality which I could hardly conceive as produced by one player. Certainly, Eric Zahn was a genius of wild power. As the weeks passed, the playing grew wilder, whilst the old musician acquired an increasing haggardness and furtiveness pitiful to behold. He now refused to admit me at any time, and shunned me whenever we met on the stairs. Then one night as I listened at the door, I heard the shrieking vial swell into a chaotic babble of sound, a pandemonium which would have led me to doubt my own shaking sanity had there not come from behind that barred portal a piteous proof that the horror was real, the awful, inarticulate cry which only a mute can utter, and which rises only in moments of the most terrible fear or anguish. I knocked repeatedly at the door, but received no response. Afterward, I waited in the black hallway, shivering with cold and fear, till I heard the poor musician's feeble effort to rise from the floor by the aid of a chair. Believing him just conscious after a fainting fit, I renewed my rapping, at the same time calling out my name reassuringly. I heard Zahn stumble to the window and close both shutter and sash, then stumble to the door, which he falteringly unfastened to admit me. This time... His delight at having me present was real, for his distorted face gleamed with relief while he clutched at my coat as a child clutches at its mother's skirts. Shaking pathetically, the old man forced me into a chair whilst he sank into another, beside which his vial and bow lay carelessly on the floor. He sat for some time inactive, nodding oddly, but having a paradoxical suggestion of intense and frightened listening. Subsequently, he seemed to be satisfied, and crossing to a chair by the table wrote a brief note, handed it to me, and returned to the table, where he began to write rapidly and incessantly. The note implored me, in the name of mercy, and for the sake of my own curiosity, to wait where I was while he prepared a full account in German of all the marvels and terrors which beset him. I waited, and the dumb man's pencil flew. It was perhaps an hour later, while I still waited and while the old musician's fervently written sheets still continued to pile up, that I saw Zahn start as if from the hint of a horrible shock. Unmistakably, he was looking at the curtained window and listening stutteringly. Then I half fancied I heard a sound myself, though it was not a horrible sound, but rather an exquisitely low and infinitely distant musical note suggesting a player in one of the neighboring houses, or in some abode beyond the lofty wall over which I was never able to look. Upon Zahn the effect was terrible, for dropping his pencil, suddenly he rose, seizing his vial, and commenced to rend the night with the wildest playing I had ever heard from his bow save when listening at the barred door. It would be useless to describe the playing of Eric Zahn on that dreadful night. It was more horrible than anything I had overheard, because I could now see the expression of his face and could realize that this time the motive was stark fear. He was trying to make a noise, to ward off something or drown something out, what I could not imagine, awesome though I felt it must be. The playing grew fantastic, delirious, and hysterical, yet kept to the last the qualities of supreme genius which I knew this strange old man possessed. I recognized the air. It was a wild Hungarian dance popular in the theaters, and I reflected for a moment that this was the first time I had ever heard Zahn play the work of another composer. Louder and louder, wilder and wilder, mounted the shrieking and whining of that desperate vial. The player was dripping with an uncanny perspiration and twisted like a monkey, always looking frantically at the curtained window. In his frenzied strains, I could almost see the shadowy satyrs and bacchanals dancing and whirling insanely through the seething abyss of clouds and smoke and lightning. And then I thought I heard a shriller, steadier note that was not from the vial, a calm, deliberate, purposeful, mocking note far away in the west. 
At this juncture, the shutter began to rattle in a howling night wind which had sprung up outside as if in answer to the mad playing within. Zahn's screaming vial now outdid itself, emitting sounds I had never thought a vial could admit. The shutter rattled more loudly, unfastened, and then commenced slamming against the window. Then the glass broke shiveringly under the persistent impacts, and the chill wind rushed in, making the candles sputter and rustling the sheets of paper on the table where Zahn had begun to write out his horrible secret. I looked at Zahn and saw that he was past conscious observation. His blue eyes were bulging, glassy, and sightless, and the frantic playing had become a blind, mechanical, unrecognizable orgy that no pen could even suggest. A sudden gust stronger than the others caught up the manuscript and bore it down the window. I followed the flying sheets in desperation, but they were gone before I reached the demolished panes. Then... I remembered my old wish to gaze from this window, the only window in the Rue de Asil from which one might see the slope beyond the wall and the city outspread beneath. It was very dark, but the city's lights always burned, and I expected to see them amidst the rain and wind. Yet when I looked from the highest of all gable windows, looking while the candles sputtered and the insane vial howled in the night wind, I saw no city spread below and no friendly lights gleaming from remembered streets, but only the blackness of space illimitable, unimagined space alive with motion and music and having no semblance to anything on earth. And as I stood there, looking in terror, the wind blew out both candles in that ancient peaked garret, leaving me in the savage and impenetrable darkness with chaos and pandemonium before me and the demon madness of that night-baying vial behind me. I staggered back in the dark, without means of striking a light, crashing against the table, overturning a chair, and finally groping my way to the place where the blackness screamed with shocking musing. To save myself and Eric Zahn, I could at least try, whatever the powers opposed to me. Once I thought some chill thing brushed me, and I screamed, my screams could not be heard among that hideous vial. Suddenly, out of the blackness, the madly sawing bow struck me, and I knew I was close to the player. I felt a head touch the back of Zahn's chair and then found and shook his shoulder in effort to bring him to his senses. He did not respond, and still the vial shrieked on without slacking. I moved my hand to his head, whose mechanical nodding I was able to stop, and shouted in his ear that we must both flee from the unknown things of the night he neither answered me nor abated the frenzy of his unutterable music, while all through the garret strange currents of wind seemed to dance in the darkness and babble. When my hand touched his ear, I shuddered, though I knew not why, knew not why till I felt to the face, the ice-cold, stiffened, unbreathing face whose glassy eyes bulged uselessly into the void. And then, by some miracle finding the door and the large wooden bolt, I plunged wildly away from that glassy-eyed thing in the dark and from the ghoulish howling of that accursed vial whose fury increased even as I plunged. Leaping, floating, flying down those endless stairs through the dark house, racing mindlessly out into the narrow, steep, and ancient street of steps and tottering houses, clattering down steps and over cobbles to the lower streets and the putrid canyon-walled river, panting across the great dark bridge to the broader, healthier streets and boulevards we know. All these are terrible impressions that linger with me. And I recall that there was no wind, and that the moon was out, and that all the lights of the city twinkled. Despite my most careful searches and investigations, I have never since been able to find the Rue de Arceaux. But I am not wholly sorry either for this or for the loss in undreamable abysses of the closely written sheets which alone could have explained the music of Eric Zahn.
That was H.P. Lovecraft's The Music of Eric Zahn, as read by our very own Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator and an associate editor at Tales to Terrify. He enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama, and shares life with a husband, dog, and cat. As always, thank you, Seth. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Consider supporting our podcast on Patreon, via the link in the show notes. And like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson and website by Josh Leitze. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I look forward to seeing you again next week, back in more frigid climes, for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.